Hey everybody, welcome to the CLG podcast where we break down the information asymmetry on all things blockchains, oracles, and smart contracts. So we haven't recorded a podcast in a little while. Last one was with Sergey earlier this year and a whole lot's happened over the past of many months, particularly in the Chainlink ecosystem with everything uh, TradFi adoption related and CCIP related. And I feel like we kind of do a podcast like every six months where we kind of talk about where we are in the market, how things are evolving, how they've shifted and kind of how we see things shifting over time over the next like 12 months or so. So the particular catalyst has definitely been the, the institutional interest and in adoption of CCIP within the past like two weeks. <laughs> we got Swift, ANZ, DTCC, and all the, all the news with CCIP would really uh, kind of broken into the mainstream in terms of chain like awareness. So, you know, there's a lot to talk about. And uh, to help me discuss this topic, I have the one and only Crypto Oracle on. How are you doing today? You're doing good. And you said there, there's been a lot happening, but I feel like it, there was not a lot happening, which is why we, you know, didn't like the, the, the industry was like in this big, long lull for a while. And then yeah, in the last few weeks, uh, Chainlink's just been front and center attention in the industry. Um, and it feels, it, it really feels like the excitement when the Chainlink community is is back, you know, and not that it left, but, you know, when there's, when they, when the whole market's in a kind of lull, it just happens. There's not as many things to talk about, but you know, in the last few weeks, it just feels, you can feel the energy, uh, you know, it's, it, as uh, the, they said in the tweet, it's palpable. Um, so it's quite exciting. It's got me excited. It's clearly got, you know, everyone else in the community and outside of our community. You know, I think at this point, I've never seen Chainlink reach so many people and, 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 you know, forums and different places that it's, that, you know, is not typically your Chainlink community. You know, I see whether it's YouTube, Reddit, um, different people in Twitter community that I've never seen before, um, different types of people, you know, so that that's really exciting. And that's, you know, because the, the community, you know, it's one thing to just market the Chainlink community, but but getting it far beyond is uh, really cool to see. Yeah, I haven't seen this much positive momentum and positive sentiment in a really long time. I think a lot of people, like both in our community, their whole thesis of why they got interested in Chainlink in the first place in like 2017 is basically now being realized where, you know, the Swift connections are real and it's so much bigger than a lot of people thought it was going to be. Probably took longer than a lot of people anticipated, but now it's basically all, all becoming real. So yeah, I kind of like, I like going on like YouTube and just looking up Chainlink and seeing like what, what are the influencers saying? And like, it's used to be radio silence for the most part for the longest time. And now it's you know, all these random people that I haven't seen before, you know, saying they're link Marines, talking about CCIP, talking about the integrations, various people across crypto Twitter saying they're becoming link Marines. You know, I've seen tweets talking about TradFi adoption or some other, some other topic like uh, the city's tokenization. And there'll be people talking about CCIP and, you know, CCIP is right in the center of that conversation within this kind of, we're seeing this like broader trend towards, you know, institutional interest in tokenized assets and community interest. And Chainlink is, right in the middle it's positioned in the same way uh that price feeds were in 2020 which just kicked off the adoption of that whole sphere of DeFi adoption and i think you know the reason Chainlink is you know people are so excited about it is obviously one all the enterprise announcements you know there's so many people in the industry that you know their whole thesis like you said is is enterprise adoption and and you know i understand some people don't like that but like like enterprises because it seems antithesis to crypto but the only way to achieve mass adoption is to onboard you know all these different institutions all these different 
things, you know, out, you know, that aren't necessarily going to be trustless. But I also think um, so. So on one end, you have all these announcements coming out. But on the other end, people are looking for a catalyst for our industry. People are looking for something that's going to, you know, for a while, you know, during this lull, it's just been kind of like, I mean, even the last bull cycle, you had all these scammy projects, all these this ridiculous uh, trends that were just idiotic, <laughs> to say the least. Um, and, and now, um, you know, it's, it seems like Chainlink can, Chainlink can bring the legitimacy back to the industry, which then can, you know, kick off another bull run. So like there's like a, an interest for people to, to, for any type of catalyst. And so with Chainlink being the one really bringing in a lot of real players into the industry like never before, you know, I think everyone can root for that, even if you're not like a quote unquote link marine. It seems like when you look at where the new capital and like where's the new interest for crypto going to come from, like if you look at retail, they were basically completely wrecked and wiped out last year through all the FTX, Terra, Celsius collapses. So they're, they're pretty much wrecked. And a lot of people still have this really poor perception of crypto, just given how many scams and Ponzi's to exist in the industry. And that's what a lot of the media tends to cover because it's more flashy. So it doesn't seem like retail is super duper interest in crypto right now. The funds are they're either wrecked or they're just not raising as much at this point. So that's not really a new catalyst either. So it feels like the major catalyst is the institutions stepping into crypto, legitimizing it, bringing their capital on chain, bringing their, their, their funding into the ecosystem. And that itself kind of triggers the catalyst to get other people to look back on crypto and realize, okay, it's not just kind of this Ponzi environment, or at least that's not all it can be used for, you know, the, 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 the social proof of institutions saying they're using blockchains and actually building products and launching using blockchain networks legitimizes the entire space. So we, we kind of see this both, you know, people talking about BlackRock and others issuing, you know, spot Bitcoin ETFs, and that's gotten the Bitcoin community all excited. You have, uh, you know, PayPal launching their own stablecoin on Ethereum, and that's the Ethereum community excited of seeing these institutions actually issuing assets on chain. And then, of course, you have everything that's happening with, with CCIP recently of, you know, the, the the collaboration with SWIFT and the 12 plus of the largest financial institutions in the world on using CCIP plus uh, the other other announcement with, with DTCC and ANZ working with CCIP. So it feels like we're moving past the stage of crypto is just kind of this experiment. DeFi was really just a big experiment in 2020, seeing if we can actually, you know, is this technology useful? Can it be used for anything? And now we're moving past that stage and it's kind of, okay, it is useful. What can we actually use it for? And it seems clear institutions know how to, how to take this next step here. Yeah, it, it actually reminded me of DeFi Summer and in the regard that it's a step function increase in the kind of actual utility, like fundamental utility of the industry. You know, like speculative things come after, I think, fundamental you know, increases. You know, in DeFi Summer, you had, you went from like, so the, the, the one in 2017 was just about tokens. And then you had this DeFi summer where you really started to develop applications. And that's why you had DeFi. And then you kind of had like, I mean, NFTs are just smart contracts, but like you had kind of this new wave of fundamental innovation that then drove obviously crazy speculation. But as that dries up, you need another fundamental innovation in the industry to then have the catalyst for the next set of things. You know, to come out and, and it feels like the tokenization of it's like it went from tokens to applications to now integration with the existing world. 
and, and really integration with the existing world, which means all the capital and all the users. It's the only way to really, you know, I, you know, the industry could have its little niche industry, but it's never, but it won't, it, you know, the problem right now is not people within the industry, it's getting new people in. And it feels like this is kind of that big leap forward that then kind of catalyzes a new uh, kind of bull run or whatever you want to call it. And so it, it kind of reminds me of, of that uh, situation back in 2019. Yeah, it seems like a lot of the industry for so long has been focused on building out the infrastructure, or at least that's what the VCs have typically funded, different uh, middleware solutions, different layer one blockchains. And it's just a lot of infrastructure being built. And then you look at the application layer and that hasn't really changed for years at this point. Most of the DeFi primitives have been built out and established. And there's various different tweaks that have happened over time, various different uh, you know, efficiencies being made. But for the most part, a lot of the use cases of issuing NFTs and trading on NFTs, that hasn't really changed. DeFi being a tool for speculating on crypto native assets has basically been the case for you know, basically three, four years at this point and new applications to do that, but it's still the same speculation use case. The The predominant use case of crypto has been speculation. So I think everybody's just kind of been waiting for what is going to be the killer use case of all this infrastructure that we just keep building out. You know, if we can, if we can scale blockchains to, to meet the throughput requirements that are required, uh, required for like what use case, <laughs> you know, we, we can have a million TPS, but if the only thing you could do is still speculate, then we haven't really built much useful tools. And so it, it seems like institutions stepping in, tokenizing cash deposits, tokenizing illiquid assets, OTC traded assets, tokenizing various securities and commodities. Like it feels like such an obvious use case of blockchains that people have been pitching for years, but institutions just haven't been really interested in doing until just recently. So I'm, I'm curious what you see as like, why, why are institutions interested now in tokenized assets and why weren't they interested like three years ago as much as they are now? So yeah, I think it's a, a good question. You know, what what you know, every, we talked about tokenization of real world assets by institutions, but like what what does that actually look like? Why might they want that? I think are, are fair questions. Cause I don't think, you know, some people get this concept that, you know, they're all coming to DeFi and it's gonna be like DeFi. And, and I don't really think it's gonna be exactly like DeFi, especially initially. Um, well, first you gotta recognize, you know, institutions move extremely slow. Um, you know, they, they, there's a lot that they're, they're not necessarily innovators all the time. They're, and a lot of times they're waiting for something to be proved out. And then they come in, there's lots of, like, there's a lot of risk and legal, you know, hurdles that they'd have to jump through to get in. So there's the one they're just naturally move slow. We can't expect them to, especially some, you know, especially when they're like the market leader in this and something new that almost threatens them that, you know, seems threatening at first comes in, like, they're not necessarily going to be quick to endorse that. Um, so that's one. I think two, there's a lot of there's a lot of misconceptions about how to apply this technology. You know, I think Kamala's talked a lot about this. Like people think that, you know, I think a lot of people thought in the beginning, well, I just gotta put my whole system on chain, or I gotta put all my assets on chain, or we all gotta adopt one, you know, a single blockchain. Um, and 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 that, you know, is proving not to be the case. Um, so I think there's just a lot of misconceptions about that. You know, the way that I view this, so I, I there's really two things I think going on. One, I think we're going to see kind of two different parts of the industry. We don't have to get, we can get into this a little later, but, and you're going to have kind of a, I'm just referring to it as more on-chain finance. And then, it, which I, I view as more of a, an evolution in digital finance. 
So it doesn't matter. Blockchains and smart contracts are really just a means to upgrade the digital financial ecosystem. So it, if it was some other technology, they'd do it um, because there's certain benefits they get. And then you kind of have this, I'm just going to call it DeFi, but you know, you have this kind of trustless, you know, or or trying to be trustless, permissionless, you know, where you can just, I can just go get, you know, interact with financial instrument with no KYC, with you know, it's just it's just all code. So where the other one is probably going to have more legal wrappers around it. Um, so I think there's going to be these two, and eventually, you know, Surya talked about this a little bit at the it's it's a Swift uh, when he when he answered some of those questions. You know, initially they're probably going to be their own ecosystems to a large degree, but over time, since they're both in the business of making financial products, they will eventually interact. But it probably will take a little bit of time because um, again, the you know institutions move slow. So in terms of the on-chain finance, you know. I th- like I said, I think it's an evolution of digital finance. And, and really, it's just a, it's a new format for the way for ledgers, you know, the way you the way you hold assets and the way you document who owns them. And 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 also like just the format allows, you know, this format kind of allows for a lot of benefits. Like for one, you know, it can support any any asset could be tokenized. So you basically can standardize all assets into one format. And that has and that has a lot of you know composability advantages. Like then it's easier for your partners to 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 program interactions with those assets. You know, program transactions like if this happens, transfer this asset. This really gets into atomic settlement. You know, when you when you're able to to tokenize the cash element, so the payment and the asset, and then you can use you know like this is what CCIP does. You can have you can basically swap those assets at the same time. Uh, and so usually a custodian bank or someone would do that, but you but you could just basically use software to do that. It has a lot of cost efficiency. You can automate things like that much easier. So there's so there's a lot of composability, programmability benefits there. Not to mention you can also fractionalize these assets as well. So you can so then that opens up new type, you know, you can have a wider customer base for certain assets. You know, some customers won't, don't want to buy a whole massive um you know asset that's billions of dollars but you could tokenize it and then a lot of people could own it you get a lot of transparency benefits not that enterprises are all about transparency but people do want to know information about the assets that they own history and things like that so there's a lot of benefits there also when you're off the same infrastructure you can settle much faster you know i think amz talked about t plus zero or t zero where basically you can settle almost instantaneously so so that's that solves a lot of kind of party risk but so anyways, I, I think there's just when you tokenize on the same format and, 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 you're, and others can interact with your assets much easier, you, you can open it up to much more liquidity. So you have a much wider set of users around the world that can interact with your assets. So you got more customers, you got cost savings, you got new types of products. Um, and so it's just a better it's just a better format for digital assets, I think, in, in terms of institutionalized. And so and in blockchains, smart contracts are just a means. It doesn't mean they have to care about all the kind of trustless properties that that web three people are excited about you know they don't necessarily have to care about that to still get all the benefits or still to get benefits from tokenization of assets yeah and it's kind of interesting to listen to like what the institutions are are interested in in turning into tokenized assets initially like they're not talking about t-bills or traditional securities and stocks like they're talking about assets that are still traded OTC are literally traded over the phone and they don't have formal market structures around them at all. 
uh, you know, pre-IPO stock or or carbon credits that just don't have a very robust marketplace for them. And so they see tokenization as a way to basically leapfrog the existing system where they can instantly turn these assets into tokenized assets, which allows them to trade them with any other counterparty and, and add these programmable con- conditions attached to them and basically create liquid secondary markets for these assets, which traditionally have been uh, extremely hard uh, to transact with initially. And I think a lot of people, when they see banks starting up their own permission private blockchain networks, a lot of people just go, oh, you know, it's not going to go anywhere. Like it doesn't have the same properties as public permissionless chains do. But to me, that almost kind of misses the point a little bit to like kind of what you mentioned. It's about the composability, the standardized formats, and even having a shared ledger, a shared permission ledger between a couple of counterparties can be useful for those use cases. But I think what made it really click for me and I think a lot of other people of why banks are going to keep going down this route and launching their own blockchains and tokenized assets is that when you have an interoperability protocol like CCIP, you're able to issue and hold your tokenized assets on whatever chain you want, which for, for banks will probably be their own bank blockchain. But when you have access to an interoperability protocol, you can still trade with counterparties who are using other chains. So if, if you tokenize your cash on your blockchain and your counterparty is a bank on another blockchain with tokenized carbon credits, you know, historically, you wouldn't be able to trade with one another. So you just have these different islands and you're kind of kind of back at square one. You don't get the composability. You don't get the interoperability. You don't like you don't get actually get the benefits of standardization of financial markets. But when you're able to interact with these different chains, you can engage in what's called cross-chain DVP or delivery versus payment, where you can trade assets across all these different chains and access liquidity wherever it needs to be. But you still get the benefits of atomic composability and atomic settlement where you get guarantees that your trades are going to get executed exactly as you expect it to be, but you don't have to go out and you know launch your products on other people's blockchains. You don't even have to know how those blockchains work. You just interface with the interoperability protocol, uh, and then you get access to the greatest amount of liquidity around the, around the ecosystem. So it seems like when that interconnectedness scales up over time, and that's kind of what CCIP is trying to achieve, then ultimately we're going to see everybody launching their own blockchain and having their own low committees and having their own specific counterparties who like trading on those chains but they're not restricted to just trading with those counterparties. And so ultimately we'll see assets moving between chains, regardless of where they were initially issued, they'll just flow to wherever the demand is, is, is needed the most. So ultimately the ideal case is that you connect all these private permission chains together to create this on-chain finance ecosystem, more gated, but public chains are still the most neutral settlement layer, particularly between different nations that don't trust each other or counterparties that really don't trust each other. And they want some neutral place or they want to be able to access investors who just have private keys on Ethereum, then naturally over time, they're going to want more liquidity and access to more users. And so they'll connect to more and more public chains. It'll probably still have some level of permissions around those assets in, term of, uh, in terms of identity verification or other types of uh, you know regulatory compliance attached with it. But ultimately, as institutions seek greater liquidity because they just want to make more money at the end of the day and accessing more liquidity for their assets is how they can go about doing that. It seems like the natural path is it doesn't matter what blockchain asset was issued on or what blockchain your counterparty uses. All that's going to be abstracted at the background, and they'll just interact between these different blockchains as if they were different web servers and how people interact with different web servers today, uh, where it's all interoperable anyway. So it seems like that thesis, the bank chain thesis, only actually makes sense when you have interoperability. Otherwise, you kind of back at where we are today with the fractionalized economy we have. Yeah, I think I think realistically banks would probably issue us 
like they'll have some assets that they issue on public chains that they want to basically allow anyone access to. And then they'll probably have certain assets that only certain people can access. And so it, I, I think it'll be a, a mix um, of the two. And, and, and yeah, that it, the the DVP thing is exciting. And I, I didn't really understand this until, you know, Channing put out that article about it. Yeah, I feel like th- this is what I find so interesting about CCAP as a cross-chain protocol versus other cross-chain bridges we've seen over the years is like a lot of bridges are just really... They're focused on public chains, which is fine. But when you look at what they're used for, it's a lot of people just kind of moving shit coins from one chain to another chain within the the crypto DeFi casino games, the speculation use case of crypto that is the dominant use case uh, right now. And that just doesn't really interest me that much. Like it's very useful. You need to be able to move these shit coins cross chain. But to me, that doesn't really feel like the future of finance or how things are going to, going to evolve, particularly given a lot of bridges are used because they're farming the airdrops that they didn't promise, but you know, are are very careful about how the how they message around that. So that's led to a lot of inflated usage, kind of similar to DeFi Summer, where people were farming liquidity uh, rewards, where TVL would explode upwards in this like recursive cycle of, of farming the, these yield tokens that appreciate because people are speculating on it. It's kind of the same thing with bridges, but they're speculating on an asset that doesn't actually exist yet. And to me, that's not super interesting. But when you have a cross-chain protocol like CCIP, where it's trying to not only connect all these different public chains together, but also connect all the private chains and connect the private chains together and connect the private chains to the public chains. That's actually where you can get access to, you know, banks have trillions of dollars in assets in the traditional financial system that they're going to put on permission chains first. And so if we want to get those assets into uh, the public chains beyond things like stable coins, which are you know, institutions a little more, more comfortable issuing on public chains, then you'll need some interoperability protocol to do that. And not only that, you need some protocol that can connect the existing traditional backend systems to all those blockchains. Because if you're an institution and you want to start issuing assets or you want to start engaging with your counterparties who use different chains from you, that's going to be hundreds of blockchains and potentially thousands of blockchains. And that's like thousands of different integrations with thousands of different blockchains each that works slightly different. Some are EVM, some use different VMs, some have different consensus protocols, some are permissioned, some are permissionless. Like there, there's so much variability. It's not practical to integrate with each each one of those. And it's not practical to throw away your backend system that you've invested millions in and have trained you know, tens of thousands of employees on how to use that backend system. Institutions aren't going to throw that away. What they want to be able to do is connect those backend systems, use existing infrastructure like Swift infrastructure or like traditional mainframe databases and just plug that into blockchains one time and then access any of the blockchains just by using CCIP as that that abstraction layer. And I don't, I don't think any other bridge has even really thought about doing this or has, has really executed on this at all and certainly not worked with institutions on making this a reality. So that to me where people talk about, you know, can bridge XYZ, you know, is that going to be better than, than CCIP? Is it going to, you know, has a little bit more usage today to me? All, all the public usage of, of traditional crypto bridges don't matter at all. It's just kind of uh, proving that bridges are useful, which is, I think it's very clear. And also proving how important security is for bridges. We literally just saw Mixin Network get hacked for hundreds of millions of dollars. And that's after Wormhole was hacked and after Ronin was hacked and after all these different bridges that you never heard of also got hacked. So uh, to me, CCIP to call it a bridge isn't even like you know, it's like comparing Amazon to a lemonade stand. Like, like, yeah, they're both businesses, but like beyond that, there's not really any way to compare them because they're just going after totally different sized 
market. So that, that's what really gets me excited about CCIP. It's, to, it's a totally different opportunity, but I'm curious if you see the, see the same uh, value proposition in CCIP. When you, I mean, when you look at CCIP, I mean, yeah, it, it took longer to develop, but it depends on what, what are you going after? What is the scale? What is the amount of value? What, who are the users that you're going after? Like, I think a lot, of, I think what a lot of, you know, bridge protocols did is they, they wanted to get a minimal viable product out there. They wanted to get Deegan's, you know, who want to move their coins, which, which is a use case. Don't get me wrong, but like that, you know, this, so, so they, you know, didn't, they didn't spend, they didn't spend as much time and research and, and, and money on, on building a super secure system that could potentially, you know, that could be a global standard for the way assets move across the world. I mean, that's a massive, that's, that's some, you know, it's like how TCIP, how TCP IP is for the internet, that, that can, you know, CCIP can be that for the global financial system. So, okay, you spent, you know, I think it's worth spending a little bit more time uh, on getting it right and really baking in, this, you know, hardcore security uh, so you can, you know, facilitate that. I don't, I don't think any other, you know, like I said, every other bridge team that they just wanted to, you know, get something to market quickly. Um, and while that might have got some initial users moving tokens, you know, like I said, a lot of it's just speculation um, at the end of the day. But but again, I know if if everyone starts, if all the financial institutions are adopting CCIP, I mean, I think DeFi protocols are also going to want to, not to mention they're just going to get better security as well. Um, the other thing I think that's that I think is uh, important is that you know I don't there's a lot of bridges out there like I don't think you know it, if institutions are all using different bridges like first I don't think one institution wants to have a a, a bridge stack with like ten different bridges I mean yeah we're gonna use this bridge for this one we're gonna use this bridge for that one like that just complicates their system a lot and also like like you said they could have different they might have different notions of finality or different things. And that could it, that can probably you know that might mess with the atomic nature of of settling assets and stuff and, and add more complexities, and so I think having one you know that's why everyone uses Swift is because you know because it's it's one standard that it, that they all agreed upon for certain key elements that they all need to know, um, and I think with with CCIP yeah, it, it makes sense you know you you want a single you want a standard that everyone can use, um, and so. I think that's also something to consider is that, you know, you just, you know, having 10 different bridges for your financial, you know, for your, for bridging assets, it's just, I don't think anyone really wants that. It's more complicated. It's a higher attack surface. Yeah. And I think that people, it, it's hard to grasp, like just the amount of value that flows through the traditional system. Like, you know, DeFi went up to, I think it was like $200 billion in TVL in total. And that's a lot of money, but institutions are handling trillions of dollars on a daily basis. And one, one of the partners that Chainlink is collaborating with, the DTCC, they settled two quadrillion dollars of securities volume a year. They basically run the United States securities market. Like that they are the financial system, basically. And so when you have these institutions like SWIFT, which is interbank messaging for all the banks in the world, DTCC, the equivalent of the DTCC in Europe, Euroclear and Clearstream, the biggest banks in Australia, the biggest banks in Europe, the biggest banks in the UK, the, the the Swiss stock exchange, and all of them are looking at, okay, we want to use CCIP to connect our system to blockchains and connect these blockchains together. Like th that's to me how a standard is ultimately created. It's not 
going to a working group, giving out some papers and saying, hey, please, please use our, please use our solutions. They're, they're so amazing. Please trust us. Like the standards are created by what people are actually using. And that demand, I think, is what's uh, taken a lot of people's attention because you have other projects like like Ripple or, or these other projects that, you know, their, their narrative for years is that they were going to serve the institutions. And that was everybody loves that narrative because capital markets is where all the money is and that's where the opportunity is. But they've never really been able to capitalize on this opportunity because they're not actually providing the solutions that institutions want. They provide a really good thesis for investors and a very convincing story, which is why people bought into this story for, for many years. But it seems like to me, Chainlink is the only project that's actually taking a go-to-market strategy to institutions that actually solves their needs, which is being able to use one connection point to CCIP to integrate with any chain as an abstraction layer. They don't even have to handle cryptocurrency if they want to touch public chains. And being able to connect all these chains together, it, 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 that, that's going to be crucial to their, their, their tokenized asset strategy. Otherwise, why issue a token if you have no liquidity and you can't move it across chains and for your for your counterparties to access? So to me, I, I just don't see how we're going to create an on-chain financial system without something like CCIP for connectivity between all these different systems together. And the other benefit that sometimes I think gets overlooked as well is that, you know, if you adopt CCIP, you can get all these other services that you're going to need for tokenization as well. And, you, and, and you'll be able to compose those services with CCIP, you know, it's proof of reserve. You know, like if you're going to have all these tokenized assets coming on chain, you know, people are going to need to, you know, know what what the collateralization is and and yeah they might you know a lot of it will probably revolve around auditors especially initially but they still going to want you know audits you know testing to the value of those assets before they interact with those assets and then same with cross-chain assets so proof of reserve is, is probably going to be an important feature that's probably going to need to interact with ccip in various ways to enable these transactions you're going to need to service these assets, like provide data to these assets or send messages back from CCIP to your existing systems, uh, like status updates and things like that. And then, you're, but also your, your systems are going to need to send data that then inform how those assets are transferred across. Um, so, you know, that's going to be really important too. And again, that, that can, can, you know, we'll be able to compose. So you, so you get, the, you get something even much broader than, than, you know, just a bridge or even a cross-chain protocol is you get all these supplementary services on top to really create a wide range of solutions that can solve a, you know, a wide range of problems for you. Um, so, so I think that's also a benefit that, you know, that is, you know, Chainlink is a, a platform of web three services. It's not just cross chain. And then when you start to combine those, you, you, know, you, there's a, you know, you can do a lot of things. I mean, that's kind of the power of being a platform where different projects will try to solve different piecemeal solutions. And then when you try to create like a full tokenized asset strategy, and you got to like piecemeal all these different projects and protocols together. Like it's going to be very haphazard and there's not going to be much standardization. Everyone will use slightly different things. But if you have one platform where you can get the connectivity to your backend system, the interoperability between chains, you have the ability to pump in any data you need, uh, like nav data or, or just any kind of metadata you need for that asset. And no matter where that asset moves to different chains, Chainlink services also live there and they'll continue to provide the information required to keep that asset updated, regardless of where it moves across this the, 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 the across the ecosystem. That creates really powerful network effects where you basically don't have to go to any other platform. You have all the tools and resources that blockchains don't provide to keep these assets, uh, these, these different assets all updated. And to me, it's not even necessarily about 
converting existing assets into an on-chain format, which is already like a massive opportunity. There's, you know, just trillions of dollars opportunity there. But when you have a more efficient format for assets, you create new assets as a result. So we kind of saw this and Sergey used this example. He called it securitization 2.0 to, to explain tokenization. But like when you have the ability to create new financial products like securitization in the early 2000s, you create new products by doing that. If you can access greater liquidity, you can create products that cater towards those investors. So it's not even necessarily about bringing those assets already exist today on chain. It's about what new assets can we create when we have these digital assets that are infinitely divisible, infinitely configurable, infinitely programmable, and have atomic composability, atomic settlement across all these different environments. Like what is that? What kind of new assets does that enable? Entirely new digital assets, particularly when you can plug in directly. It's like IoT sensors. You have entirely new categories of energy-based assets. We're building out renewable infrastructure. You like you. It's basically like trying to think of use cases for the internet in the '90s. Like you can try, but you're kind of limited by the infrastructure and use cases that exist. So it's kind of it's hard to tell what's going to be built out and what isn't. But I think over time we're going to realize that a lot of people's scope of thinking what tokenized assets are going to be like right now. Everyone gets super excited by tokenizing T-bills and treasuries, which is useful for like DAOs that need to diversify their treasury and get away from just holding crypto assets. But like tokenizing T-bill is going to be seen as like the instant messenger use case of the internet. Like it makes sense. It's probably like step one. But to think that's all tokenized assets are ever going to be is like the highest quality financial asset in the world. It's kind of, it's just kind of silly to me. Like it's just going to, it's going to, we thought DeFi summer was DGEN institutions are way more degen. They just cover it up in flowery language that nobody understands, uh, which is kind of a feature, not, not necessarily a bug, but like there's going to be some very advanced financial products created that nobody understands because that's what banks do. They create assets and we're giving them a whole new tool belt and like saying here, explore, b- build what you want. And I, I think people underestimate what that is because it's really hard to visualize what that's going to look like ultimately. Yeah, I just kind of thought of this, but you know, it's almost like tokenization is a new format type for assets but on-chain finance is a new format for a global financial system it's a new way for people to interact with one another basically you know that's where you have atomic settlement that's where you have programmability um, that you can create various types of assets you can access assets from others in, in a much easier way so i think there's really two things going on you have the format of the asset but then you have this kind of on-chain finance is new way of transacting assets with your counterparties and, and, and creating contracts that, that you know, smart contracts basically for how those interact. So yeah, I, I, and maybe it's interesting now to get into, you know, like how do you, you know, how is this going to affect how we perceive Web3? Because it feels like, you know, I, I tweeted about this before. You know, I, I think how we think about, Web3 or crypto, whatever name you want to use, I think it's going to is in the very beginning stages of changing. You know, I think for a while it was like crypto kind of this very trustless way of interacting, which is which is great. I mean, I mean, I have to say I, I like those properties. You know, I'm a I'm more I'm very aligned with those properties. But, you know, I think the reality where the we're moving more towards um, a system that uses tokenization and blockchains for efficiency for you know certain transparency benefits but also the composability so so kind of different benefits and it feels like as 
you know, to tokenization of traditional markets starts to become more popular, it might really become like the face of the industry. Like this is like, so there's almost, there almost becomes two industries. There's kind of the DeFi trustless industry, and then you have this kind of on-chain finance industry um, and, and they're separate, but also connected in a way. Um, because I, I mean, obviously the media is going to love this use case a lot more because there's huge brands attached to it. There's kind of, it's based on kind of real utility, whereas the other side, yeah, there's a lot of real products, but there's also a lot of, you know, there's, there's a casino. I mean, so a lot of times it's a big casino and, and, you know, so I, I feel like there's going to be this kind of uh, separation in the industry, at least for a while. And then I think it will merge more over time as, as you know, the reality is DeFi has to clean up its own act in a lot of ways. Like, like if we, if you want to create a new financial system that everyone's going to adopt, well, you got to create real value and you can't just create a lot of Ponzi's or, you know, create things fast that break. Like we haven't, we haven't exactly done ourselves any favor by what we've created. I mean, yes, there've been some great things. There's a lot of, really honest and good developers that are really trying to change the system but there's also but the, i'd say even more than than the legit people there are a lot of people who just want to make money quick who are developing ponzi's and and that's you know so so we, we in a lot of ways we've done this to ourselves and so it's kind of ripe for these new industries to come for you know for tokenization of real world assets to come in and become the most kind of dominant use case in the industry and hopefully that will push the other side to really innovate. I think it will. I mean, I think ultimately it will push the other side to innovate more. And then you'll start to arrive at this system where they start to interact more. Yeah, it feels like everybody kind of has a different thesis on how it's going to evolve. What I feel like is for a while, at least, we're just going to have these totally two different worlds. We'll have the on-chain world with the financial institutions, the private permission, blockchains, I think a lot of crypto natives won't pay much attention to that or don't consider it real crypto. And then DeFi will just kind of continue its own thing. But I think over time, DeFi applications basically have to choose which path they want to go down. And I think like one path is like the convergent evolution where over time they add on the things necessary for them to accept traditional tokenized assets. So there'll probably be things like identity verification that that'll be basically the end state of where De that DeFi application basically looks identical to what a traditional finance application on a permission blockchain looks like. They'll basically be identical. And at that point, the only difference will be what settlement layer they're settling on, a public blockchain or a permission blockchain. But it's kind of like convergent evolution where they started from different points, but they kind of arrived at the same point and have the features that institutions want in terms of the big thing is really identity verification, which will put a lot of people off where that kind of moves away from the full trustlessness that some people desire, what I, which I feel like is a little bit of a niche, but I think it's still very important for that to exist. And I think there'll be the other set of DeF applications that'll go down kind of like a go more underground almost. I kind of think of it as like the dark net thesis where you have, you know, if you look at like the dark net ecosystem, you have these different, they're basically exchanges for real world assets and they use cryptocurrency as the currency. Like it, dark net markets are DeFi, like that is DeFi. To me, that was like the original thesis of Bitcoin. That's what it was used for on the on the Silk Road was to you know purchase purchase drugs initially, but really they're just trading of assets. And so those protocols, you know, they use a lot of the same technology as crypto in terms of decentralized infrastructure, encrypted messaging, you know, Monero for payments. And I think DeFi, some portion of DeFi will start going down that route where they try to become as censorship resistant as humanly possible using the Tor network, using you know as much uh, identity 
privacy as possible, basically things like tornado cash, which will probably the state will not appreciate and will probably get sanctioned, but it's kind of the type of application you can't actually make go away. You know, dark net markets have been illegal since they were invented, but they still exist. It's kind of funny if you look at the history, like they, they they rug pull in the same way that that DeFi rug pulls happens. Like it really is just the same exact thing, just a totally different use case. Probably one of the better use cases of 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 DeFi, to be honest. But you know that that'll be the one path. But I think that'll be niche. Like no institution is going to put their money <laughs> into that. Realistically, they're going to put their their money into the applications that have the guardrails that they expect. And if you want an application that can sustain itself monetization wise and provide the most about, amount of value to the most amount of users, they're going to make some compromise. Like DeFi, that section of DeFi or really just on-chain finance and traditional uh, financial system, they have to come to some compromise in order to provide the most amount of value to people. Otherwise, you know, we're just going to have the same fractionalized economy in some niche darknet underground marketplace that serves a small fraction of the economy itself. So it feels like it's going to split in two different directions, but it seems pretty clear to me you know, most people are just going to follow the money at the end of the day, institutions and average people. That's kind of what it comes down to. They're going to follow the money and they're going to follow the law, which will probably become law. I mean, the, here's the reality of my, in my opinion. If you want to create a truly like trustless financial system, well, one, it's just hard to program everything trustless. Like, yes, you can do money like Bitcoin, but, it, but a lot of, there's a lot of protocols is going to be very hard to do just in general. That, that's that's one barrier. Second, if you want this to like achieve mass adoption, that means like your 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 normie friends are using trustless DeFi protocols to interact on a daily basis. You know, like people around the world are using it. it, it this is where you get into political territory. Like you have to have a this is, you have to have a political movement big enough with enough people using your products and services that the government has to compromise. I mean, that, 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 that's where you really, where you're, if you follow the logic down the line, that's where you end up. And, and I'm, I'm not opposed to that, but I have not seen any evidence that that is remotely close to happening. One, DeFi hasn't built enough useful services and products to actually get people to use it. Two, I mean, look at the political will of a lot of people around the world. Like they, they, like they can't. Like people are generally unhappy with the way things are, but they don't really change much. People are comfortable. You know, they're not. Are they going to get out in the streets, or they're going to like really put themselves out on the line to allow this, you know, trustless protocols to be forced to be adopted. You know, to be kind of forced onto the. You know, maybe not forced, but like become so big that they can't be stopped. Like, I just don't see that happening. I, I you know, like I said, I'm not opposed. I, I It would be nice, but I think one, it's a technical challenge. And two, I just don't see the, the political will there. And so unless people are willing to do that, you know, I think we're heading towards a more kind of convergence. Yeah. Where you have a lot of DeFi protocols that will, will kind of, go towards the middle, go more toward, you know, we'll, we'll implement certain things, maybe like identity verification. And then, yeah, you'll have the others that will go almost dark market like. Um, and, and hopefully when you go towards the middle, though, we will retain, I think we will retain at least certain benefits that it won't be the whole thing. You won't have the total trustless, but you still will get some benefits. Um, and, you know, I think that that's 
that's just the middle ground that I think will happen, whether I like it or not. Yeah, to me, it feels like the difference between idealism versus pragmatism, where it, you kind of see the same thing in Web3 UX, where it's it would be idealistic if everybody held their own private key in a hardware wallet and everybody you know self-custodied their crypto. That, that would be great, and you should always have that option to do that. But if we want to scale, that can't be the only option. It's just not practical. So you need these middle ground solutions, like in terms of Web3 UX, like having semi-custodial uh, solutions, social recovery, being able to abstract away a lot of the technical complexity, which means compromising a little bit on, on the trust properties. But by doing that, you can scale to way more people. And I think the same thing kind of applies here where you know, the, the, the market demand for very niche, ultra censorship resistant, ultra decentralized applications, you know, the market demand I think is not as large as people realize. It's always good to have a backup solution that you can always fall back on. I think that's something that shouldn't be, you know, that shouldn't be minimized. That always has value, but that's not going to scale to a billion people because most people just don't care enough about finance. Realistically, they don't understand how finance works. They just want better products. And if they can access a on-chain finance product that's 10 times cheaper and 10 times faster than what they're already using today, like they're going to use that versus trying to go down like the rocky path with thorns and the government going after them on the other path for which the gain right now is pretty unclear beyond speculation. So I think both worlds are probably ultimately coexist, but I think most people are going to follow what most institutions are going to end up building out realistically. And when once you have, once you're kind of have this on-chain financial system, whether maybe there is some compromise, it could always move more towards the trustless model over time. Like it could, you could get mass adoption in this middle ground, but then as people become more familiar, as new cryptographic techniques and research in decentralized systems come out, you could, I, I could see a scenario where you move more towards that direction over time. So I don't think it's like, oh, mass adoption doesn't come in one form, it's the end. I mean, yeah, I know things are, are hard to change once they're kind of set in stone, but I could see a scenario where, you know, I don't think I don't think this research into cryptography and centralized systems is going away or, you know, it's all really game theory at the end of the day. Um, I don't think it's going away. So it, it could we, we, we could see it move that way over more time. And I think we will. Yeah, I think people at times underestimate innovation where compromising meeting in the middle doesn't mean giving up all your ideals. Like, like a term, for example, like identity verification, you know, there, there are zero knowledge proof technologies where you can prove who you are while still retaining privacy preserving properties around it. So like there are solutions that kind of give a, give and take a little bit on both sides without just completely giving up to institutions and kind of arriving back at where we already are today in the traditional system. It's kind of, it can be hard to imagine what that looks like. And there'll be, it, it'll be a spectrum. It's kind of why I don't like the term DeFi really, because it just, it focuses on one end of the spectrum. Like I would consider like Uniswap to be DeFi. It's just an immutable contract that sits there and does, you know executes automatically. But lending your centralized USDT stable coins on a money market that's upgradable by a DAO of token holders is like, like is that DeFi? Like there's always things you can poke at that's not truly decentralized on, on that. So like there, there, it's just going to be a spectrum of, of completely decentralized to basically holding cust custodial assets on a custodial chain in custodial accounts. Which is, which is fine if you want to go down that route, but there'll be this whole spectrum in the middle. And so, you know, you can launch those permissioned applications and use cases on permissioned or on permissionless public open blockchains. Like these concepts, they're not inherently compatible. And at the end of the day, 
the consumer should basically have greater choice in what what they want to engage in. Realistically, I still feel that they're going to follow the money at the at the end of the day. But if you're able to choose which financial system you want to opt in and opt out into, that's always better because right now you don't really have a choice in what financial system you use. It's basically what you're born into, and that's that's what you can access if you happen to live somewhere where it's easier to get a bank account or not. But once we have an on-chain financial ecosystem, you can choose which ecosystems you want to step into and what level of permissions you want to uh, you know, enter yourself into. And I think that's one of the greater properties of building an on-chain financial system. It's not all the idealistic properties, but it's still an order of magnitude increase over the status quo. Um, so what I'm, what I'm curious on, and I kind of have my own theories a little bit, but what time frame do you think you know, an on-chain financial ecosystem is going to play it out, play out on. Like, it's going to happen tonight. Good question. I mean, I'm not probably not the best person to ask because I thought adoption was going to happen a lot faster than it did. But I think most people thought that, so I don't think I'm alone there. I think you know, I've I've readjusted my timeframes. I, I mean, I think within, I really kind of think within the next two years, you're going to see a like you're going to be able to recognize a clear on-chain financial like a lot of institutions are going to have assets on chain they're going to be starting to swap those assets amongst each other for real value on mainnet so i think within two years you're going to have quite a lot of assets you know at least like like you said certain types of assets like maybe carbon credits or or you know some of these other ones you're going to have real market of transactions between probably mostly between institutions but you probably will get the initial start of some DeFi protocols holding some of those assets on their balance sheet. I mean, we've already seen this a little bit with Maker. Um, so I think I think you're going to see that in the next two years where, yeah, you have a real you have a real ecosystem. You have like a DeFi-like ecosystem, but for on-chain finance. So it's not going to be the traditional financial ecosystem yet. But I think it will be in that stage where it's it's like, okay, now we've test, we've actually tested an initial market on-chain. Like we have real transactions going through. They've been going through for a year or two now. You know, let's start. Let's start to scale this. So I think you'll 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 be at that stage where it's being primed to start scaling. Um, but I'd say within the next year, then within five years, I think you'll have a pretty. I, I kind of think you will have a pretty robust on-chain ecosystem that's quite. It's pretty large. If it feels almost like one of those situations where it's probably going to take longer than you think, but once it does happen, it'll happen a lot faster than you think. Like a, a lot of the blockers is just regular regulatory clarity, and the the U.S. is kind of kicking its feet while we see a little bit more clarity in, in like the Europe and the Asia regions in particular. It's so like that feels like that's still the primary blocker today. But I think at least what I saw from like this most recent Cybos conference is like the demand is real. A lot of institutions are very interested. In issuing their tokenized assets. I think a lot of them are still trying to figure out what that means and what they can actually get out of it. It feels like within the three, like next three to five years, we'll see something that that resembles on-chain institutions engaging in on-chain finance, not nearly at the scale that the traditional system operates. But I think there will be very clear markets where tokens or specific asset classes predominantly trade in an on-chain finance format. Like it probably won't be Apple stock, primarily trading on a NASDAQ DEX or something anytime soon, but it'll probably be more of these unique assets that, you know, historically, like I said, like was OTC traded or just uh, didn't even exist before in the first place. Like that, that's really where we're going to see the most demand. And that's the hardest to gauge because it's hard to, people just don't think about illiquid assets because they don't ever trade them. And really that's made possible by 
by the DVP part because you you start tokenizing cash. Banks will accept the tokenized cash of other banks. Um, those are like real, you know, I think those, they, those are like as real of assets as you can get. And so then when they issue these assets, they can, yeah, they can just instantly settle and basically open these up to any other banks for their tokenized cash to be used to buy those. So I think that really opens up a, a real market there um, for, for, for these, uh, you know, new types of tokenized assets. But without the tokenized cash part, then you got to do off-chain payments. And while Chainlink can facilitate that, it's going to, it's, it's, I think it's a little bit more complex when you've got to do settlement in different other layers. But when you can do that directly right there on chain in one transaction in really uh, virtually almost real time, that's where a lot of value is. I think that's what Nigel Dobson, when he was talking to Sergey at ANZ, when he was talking about the value of the message, of the, the value and the message moving together. I mean, that's really the innovation that he was really excited about. So I think that's really what he's referring to there. Without the tokenized cash part, and we're already seeing, like I said, there's lots of tokenized deposits, to bank, you know, tokenized cash, stable coins, like they all want to do this now. So they're all going to have this. They're going to allow their customers to then use that to purchase assets. And then, you know, they're probably going to have a banking app and then CCIP will abstract away interactions with all those assets. So you just have a marketplace on your banking app and you can go buy these various assets and all that will be abstracted away from the customer. And even CCIP will abstract it away for the bank and allows them to talk to all these chains and, and you know, get all these assets. So I think it'll be a very seamless process in not that long of a time. I mean, a lot of this will probably be for institutional investors at first, but I mean, that's that's where it's going, in my opinion. Yeah, I was kind of, I was almost like amazed by like the, the use case that ANZ is doing with CCIP because it does feel like that's what every institution is going to end up doing. They're going to create their own tokenized asset marketplace. They'll have their own stable coins listed on there. They'll have their own tokenized assets, whether it's carbon credits or whatever other assets. But each of these tokenized asset marketplaces that each bank has will be natively interoperable with each other. And so as a consumer, you may not even realize like you're using tokenized assets. Like that's just kind of abstracted away from you. You're, you're certainly not going to know what blockchain you're using, but you're just going to be able to, okay, you know, be able to, to say, okay, I have a tokenized ANZ stablecoin deposit and I'm going to trade for this JP Morgan issue tokenized asset. And you just click, you know, tap a couple of times in your phone and you have the asset. Like you're not going to understand what's happening on the back end, but all the interoperability that makes that process settle in, in 10 seconds and cost of, you know, a couple of pennies. And you can instantly access the liquidity of any environment of every other bank's tokenized asset marketplace like that. That to me just seems so clear. And, you know, ANZs, that's kind of what they're, what they're trying to do initially with these tokenized uh, reef credits and with their own Australian dollar, New Zealand dollar tokenized cash deposits. So it feels like that's that case study to me is ultimately just going to get increasingly scaled up over time as every institution basically sees what banks like ANZ are doing and going, okay, I, I want a piece of that. <laughs> I want to be able to interconnect and trade with those markets and allow my customers to trade on those marketplaces without just completely giving up my customers to those banks because I don't offer a, a tokenized asset marketplace. Like it's, it's just, it's such a clear thesis to me that, that I, I just compare that thesis and I think back to like other crypto projects that try to do capital markets and there's just no, there's no clear thesis with a lot of those projects. Like uh, example I use is like XRP communities narrative with, with Swift. I just don't understand what the narrative is. You know, sometimes it's XRP replacing Swift. Sometimes it's Swift using XRP. Sometimes it's complementary. It just, it doesn't make any sense because Swift doesn't care about XRP, but with CCIP, it's Swift use CCIP for cross-chain tokenized asset settlement. Like that's, 
it's just such a clear story and that that'll be clear to institutions that'll be clear to market participants that'll be clear to retail as like a narrative for why tokenized assets and chain link fits into the story so that's kind of how i see things scaling up ultimately but you know we're going to see like a million stable coins <laughs> a million bank stable coins issued all over the place realistically the whole ecosystem is definitely it feels like it's almost like an inflection point like the cybos conference itself to me felt like a major shift just in terms of not only the perception of Chainlink as how it fits in to institutional adoption of blockchains, but just the utility of the crypto ecosystem itself is shifting increasingly away from, you know, how can I monetize the speculation of people trading crypto tokens with questionable value propositions to how can we bring on trillions of dollars and create an on-chain financial ecosystem? So I'm excited to see how this ecosystem's evolving. I'm interested to see what other institutions read the SWIFT report with Chainlink and start thinking, oh man, I need to get in on this. I need to start using CCIP for my tokenized asset strategy. I think that's that to me just feels like a major, major catalyst. So it'll be interesting to see how this evolves over time. So I, I want to thank you, CEO, for, for uh, joining me in this conversation here. I think it's been interesting. I think there should be some more interesting stuff, hopefully, after this next SmartCon conference. So any any last words for the audience? No, I'm just, I'm excited. I can feel the energy in the community. I can feel it. I can feel almost even the energy, the, the chain link energy getting into other parts of the crypto community. And I'm just excited to see what I, which, what feels like, like one of the best use cases for blockchains. It's, you know, I think, obviously I think decentralized money was, was one, but I think this like feels like we're nearing a point where like, it makes sense like it makes sense to use a blockchain and to tokenize assets in this using them in this way and so that that's what i'm excited about because i think we've been waiting for that for a while yeah i think that's that's very well put i'm i'll be happy to move beyond the speculation ponzi as being the primary use case of crypto i think that's well, it's uh, gonna I, come back it's gonna oh, come yeah. back but but again we're, we're gonna at least make a big i think step change and utility. I mean, we have to. I think that's the only way you get it. I, I've only seen the only way that the bull markets return is when you have a big fundamental innovation that drives a lot of new things uh, or, or advances things, and then then come in the, the crazies and the I mean, crypto takes it to the next level. Um, that's where that's where I almost need to just check out because it gets too too much for me. Or I'm just not really. I get it. I get why people are interested in it. I mean, they want to make money. I get that. Uh, I just, it's just very uninteresting to me, but to each their own. Yeah. Every cycle I think, okay, it's not going to get crazier than this. And then the next cycle happens and I get even more lost and confused. <laughs> so. Oh, oh, okay. I'm always, oh, I can't get any dumber than this. And then it gets dumber. <laughs> For like months on end. And it just keep, it just keeps ramping up. So yeah, I'm sure that permissionless technology it's just going to facilitate that, but hopefully that doesn't, hopefully speculation isn't the primary use case, or at least not speculation on, on crypto tokens and shit coins and tokenized JPEGs. That's, that's, you know, not why I was in, got into this industry is to make the world more efficient and, you know, more efficient overall. So glad to see we're shifting towards that direction. So I want to thank everybody for listening and stay tuned for the next one.